I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. To quote the late, great Colonel Townsend Wayland, only accurate rifles are interesting. In that vein, I'm once again joined by Ryan Stacey, the six-time National Service Rifle Champion and Director of Directions for International Barrels. International Barrels makes high-end precision rifle barrels, and we're going to talk about the facts and myths of making your rifle into a tack driver, whether that's for hunting purposes or long-range competitions. This is going to be a fun podcast because we have a number of questions that you, the listener, have asked, and we're going to go through them and answer as many as time will allow. For anyone listening who isn't aware of how you can contact us with your questions or podcast topic suggestions, simply email podcast at silvercore.ca or even better, reach out through social media, Instagram, Facebook. We don't have a TikTok account yet. If you want to reach International Barrels directly, they're also all over social media or you can get them at... Support at IBI Barrels, info at IBI Barrels, or you can email me directly, Ryan, at IBI Barrels. Perfect. We put out a couple questions to people. We're asking them about, uh, what do they want to know? What do they want to know to make their firearm That's right. more precise or more accurate? And yep. I was thinking maybe we should start with the difference between accuracy and precision. I can take that one away if you want. Sure. All yeah. right. Give me your ideas. So not even my idea. We'll just go straight to Wikipedia. Okay. Here All we right. go. So. Accuracy is a proximity of measurement results to the true value. So i.e. how close are we to the bullseye? Sure. Precision is a degree to which repeated or re- reproducible measurements under unchanged conditions show the same results. Yeah. I.e. what's your grouping Good look group like? Good size, yeah. Yeah. So as marksmen, you want to combine or marry both yep. accuracy and precision. That's right. Nice group size in the bullseye. Exactly. So with those uh, basic definitions out of the way, we got a whole slew of questions Yeah, we got here. a few. Yeah. It was good. Uh, a couple of repeats, which is good because it means that there are some popular questions here. Why don't we start off with what uh, you guys got on Instagram? Okay. So we had a guy by the name, uh, he goes by Impact Shooting. Yeah, that's Pete. He's in South Africa. Hey Pete, this is for you. He's a, he's a badass PRS shooter down there and hunter. Nice. He shoots our barrels. Surprisingly enough. Surprisingly enough. Of course he does. <laughs> Gain twist barrels. Yep. Is there any merit there or marketing fluff? Okay. So I think there is merit to gain twist barrels in a couple of ways. I think that, uh, that gain twist barrel. Well, okay. First of all, we should probably explain what a gain twist barrel is. That's a good place to start. Yeah. Okay. So gain twist barrel is a barrel that starts at a slow twist rate and speeds up as it gets to the muzzle. So the idea there is that you start with slower rotation in the beginning as the bullet's entering the rifling from the, from the throat. And as it progresses down the barrel, the, the, the twist rate of the barrel speeds up, uh, to give you that stability at the end. Now, I guess the idea is that, well, a couple things, first of all, it may impact the amount of torque that, uh, gets put out on the gun, because if you're taking, well, probably a heavy projectile in particular, and you're jamming it into a fast twist right off the get-go, 
it may incur a bit more recoil uh, or a bit more torque on the gun. So yeah. that's one thing. So we start with a little bit slower twist rate in the beginning, the projectile enters that, and then as it progresses down the barrel, it speeds up. So it may impact the torque. Now, whether that's reality or not, I, I've never shot a gain twist barrel, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, I don't know whether that's a factor. Whether it's even measurable is a, is another question. Maybe in the really big calibers, it might be. Well, didn't gain twist start with artillery? Right? I think it did. Yeah. And Way then, back in the day. Like the, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald with his Carcano. <laughs> right? was, was it Carcano or the Carcano? Carcano? Yeah. That's what I've been told that yeah. it's properly pronounced, but I don't know. Carcano. That's what I always called it. I believe that was a gain twist. Was it? I believe so. Wasn't that was it? a six, five something or other, mm -hmm. wasn't it? Yeah. Mm, interesting. Yeah. That's probably a whole nother podcast right there because I have my own theories on what went on with all that <laughs> stuff. So we probably don't want to devolve into that just quite yet, but. Uh, that would be a fun podcast. Yeah, we should because, uh, uh, there's stuff I think uh, that people don't understand about guns and you, you look at the stuff that's on YouTube and I just shake my head half the time. It wouldn't do this. It would do, you know, his head would explode in this direction. It's like, oh my God, people, do you know anything about internal ballistics or, you know, physics? Well, let's leave it to the listeners. Okay. If you, if you guys want to hear about that episode. Yeah, let's do Lee Harvey. Yeah. Let's um, give us an email and comments, but let us know yeah. if that's where you want to go. Okay. So back to gain twist. Uh, so we've got somewhat the possibility of recoil mitigation, but the one that makes a little bit more sense for me is, uh, projectile deformation basically. So if you're mm. going to jam a projectile into a fast twist and torque on it immediately out of the chamber, then I think probably the chances of, of deforming the bullet a bit more, I don't really, I'm not really sure how that would work, but. Is IBI set up to make a gain twist? Barrel, no. do gain twist no. rifling? No, so the only way you can do gain twist rifling so far is through cut rifling mm. and uh, computer controlled uh, cut riflers. With uh, button rifling or any of the other varieties, well, you could probably do it with a hammer forge, but it might be, let's see, on a mandrel. Yeah, you might not be able to do it on a hammer forge either. Mm. Um, so cut rifling can cut any, any twist like... Uh, <clears throat> like the guys at Bartline, uh, you can order a, a one in 7.93264, mm. uh, twist barrel and they can do it and they just program it and away you go. Right. Uh, with button rifling, because you're pulling a button through a barrel, uh, you can't yet. And it uses that button to. Yeah. So the button pulls through at one rate of speed. Uh, the twist rate is cut into the button. Right. As well as you are also, uh, turning the barrel at the same time at the same twist rate as the, as the button. I guess another type of rifling would be ECR. Have you ever seen that done? I haven't, no. I was at a factory in the States at Springfield, Massachusetts. Yep. The Western factory, they're yep. doing pistol barrels mm -hmm. and they had, I forget how many it was. I don't know, maybe 80 barrels yep. sitting in this bath. I think it was yep. kerosene or something. Yeah, I'd, something like that. Yeah. And, uh, they all had these mandrels in them and they flipped a switch. You see a bunch of bubbles come up yep. and in about, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds, they yep. just rifled yep. th those 80 barrels. So for those folks that don't know what ECR is, it's electrochemical rifling. So it's, it's kind of, what's that type of, uh. Kind of like EDM? Yeah. It's like EDM. Yeah, right. exactly. That's basically what I was. Electrostatic discharge. Yeah. It's kind of the same idea. So I'm not sure exactly how it works, but that might be something that would be very interesting with really hard steels. Mm -hmm. For example, machine gun barrels, uh, 
man, have we gone way off track here already? We sure did. <laughs> How are we going to get through all of these Jeez, questions? We I have know. a lot. This is crazy. Okay, well let's let's get right back onto you. Uh, okay, let's go back to the the game twist. Yeah. So, so do you feel thumbs up, thumbs down? What? Yeah, I think it's I think it has its uh, its its validity. Yeah. So less deformation on the bullet, probably uh, jamming it into hard fast lands right off the get go. Maybe better to do it a little more softly and then spin it harder as it gets towards the muzzle. Uh, so I don't think it's fluff. Like I said, I've never shot one, so I, I don't know whether it's more accurate. I highly doubt that it is, uh, because I have, I'm not seeing any accuracy difference between cut rifled, hammer forged or, um, or buttoned overall, as long as you pay attention to the other parts of the process to make the barrel. The stress relief process. Stress properly. relieving is a huge thing. Right. And then, uh, you know, having a hone is a huge thing. Uh, mm. you just, you can't get the same results just by hand lapping that you can with a hone. Well, we're going to talk about lapping as well later, but let's, do you want to jump into the next question? Okay, let's do it. We got one. Sorry, Pete. I, I blew that one. <laughs> <laughs> CR Lewis contracting. Mm. Twin. Way to plug your own business here. I yeah, love that. that was CR Lewis. smart, actually. Nice. 22 long rifle. Your <clears throat> specifications say that within 0. 0.0001 inch to yep. 0. 0.0002 inch. One, one ten thousandth of an inch. Which is extremely consistent. Yep. Many people talk about 22 long rifle barrels needing mm -hmm. a choke. Yep. With this consistency, are your barrels not choked and is it really required? Okay. That's, that's actually a great question. Good job, CR Lewis contracting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes, uh, back in the day when they were strictly hand lapping barrels, you can choke the barrel a bit by holding the lap a little bit short or doing more strokes, uh, through the barrel so that you get a bit of a, a pinching effect. Now with, with 22 barrels, you're shooting lead projectiles. So as that sucker goes down the barrel, it's going to resize basically to any tight spot in the barrel. And it's, if it's, if it's tight in the beginning and then loose towards the muzzle, it's going to be like throwing a hot dog down a hallway. It's going right. to, in, in micro terms, right. um, it's going to rattle down there. So the idea was that you would choke the, the muzzle and you would make sure that the muzzle was the tightest part of the bore so that, uh, when that sucker leaves, it's, it's doing its thing. Right. So with the hone, you don't really need that anymore because the, the bore is very consistent. Uh, the sun and guys, uh, that are the guys that make the hone for us. They say that you can get down to a millionth of an inch somehow. Uh, I don't know how wow. you would even measure that. And honestly, I don't think it really matters. A 10,000th or two tenths. That's crazy. Is, is pretty crazy, yeah. but it's measurable. So you can measure it. So as long as we have that consistency all the way through the bore, then we're finding that you don't really need to have a choked. And, and we monkeyed around with hand lapping and holding the lap short so that you get a bit of a pinch on the end. Mm. And again, it's like maybe a 10th or mm. maybe two tenths at the end. So it doesn't really make too much difference. Actually, you know, there's another thing that, uh, people ask about 22s all the time and it's, uh, Hey, muzzle threads. I want to, I want to either put a, a can on the end. I want to put uh, a fake can. I get that sure. a lot in Canada. Uh, I want to put muzzle brake. I'm not sure why you would put a muzzle brake on the 22 other than it looks cool. Right. The um, LCF. Yeah. The LCF. So that's fine. You can do it, but I will tell you that the closer you spin your profile to the bore, of the, uh, of the axis of the bore. So the tighter you get, so the thinner the barrel you get, the more chance you have of growing the bore. So the bore will actually expand a little bit if you spin close to it. Right. Now you can defeat most of that via excellent stress relieving processes, but 
that's not necessarily the best thing to do on a barrel. Uh, when you're spinning half 28 threads on a 22 barrel, that doesn't leave you a lot of meat to keep things nice and tight uh, at the muzzle, which is the most important part right. uh, of the 22 barrel. So people ask why we don't really recommend threads. Like you can run them if you want. In our testing, we haven't really seen too much difference with threads and without. But at the same time, if you're looking for the utmost inaccuracy, I would probably avoid trying to cut muzzle threads um, on a on a 22 long rifle. So just the process of cutting those threads on a, a, a slimmer profile barrel yep. mm -hmm. uh, will cause it to, I guess, stress relieve yep. and expand just a minuscule amount. I don't know if it's stress relieving. I, and I'm not a machinist, so I'm not 100% sure what the 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 factor is that causes it to grow. It may mm. just be that you're removing materials there. Right. And the reality is, is we're talking about a few ten thousandths of an inch in growth. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when you need that muzzle to be the tightest thing possible, uh, a few ten thousandths of an inch is probably not a great idea to try and uh, take away from the accuracy end of it. So uh, to, I saw there was a question on the schnubel there uh, somewhere on one of these. So yeah, we'll get to that one, but that'll yeah. probably. Yeah, it, it kind of leads into that. So that's why we have that, uh, knob, uh, lovingly called the schnubel. Uh, you call the, it a schnubel? Well. I always call it a schnobel. Yeah. Schnobel is actually the proper term, but the way this all came up was uh, when we first started doing it, we, uh, we were doing a barrel for Doug Blesson, who's a Canadian Paralympic shooter. And, uh, he had a Walther rifle and it had a, uh, a knob on the end of it. And, uh, so. We're like, okay, well, we've got to, we've got to make it the same as his existing Walther barrel. And I can't remember how it came up, but, uh, somebody goes, what's, what's this knob on the end of it called? And I'm like, I don't know. And, and so I remembered back to my uh, film days and I remember we were talking once about, uh, uh, the knob on the end of a nice, uh, wooden stock that had inlaid bone and all that kind of stuff. Right. And, uh, they had called it. Well, now I know they called it the schnobble, right. but that had been like probably, you know, seven or eight, nine years ago. And I couldn't remember what the heck it was called. And I said, I think it's called a schnoobel. <laughs> and Tim, the barrel maker looks at me and he goes, the what? And I said, the schnoobel. And he's like, how do you spell that? And I'm like, I don't know. There's like SCH and a bunch of O's and yeah. schnoobel. So, so the next time it came up, it was. Spelt with three O's and, you know, so it just turned into this weird schnoobel thing. Is that common to have a schnoobel schnobel on the end of a barrel? Not really. Nope. Uh, the Olympic shooters have them on there for two reasons. Number one, to make the barrel easily, uh, the, the right size to put their open sights on. Mm. And number two, uh, you go back to the half 28 threads. Right. Uh, to make sure that the muzzle is the tightest. So they'll have that extra large knob on the end to make sure that they don't spin anywhere near close to the bore so that you don't get any bore growth. Mm. So. Remember about, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago, a guy came into the shop and he had a firearm and he wanted it super light. He's like, yep. can you drill out the bolt handle? Can you yep. flute the barrel? Can drill you? the bolt handle? Oh yeah. Seriously? Everything. He oh wanted God. it. He's like, I want this thing light. And. Yep all right, sure. Not a problem. See what I can do. Right. And oh, I threw it into uh, the milling machine, dialed it all in, got it in a spin index there yeah. and I'm doing the fluting on it. And I, fellow says, Hey, when you, when you're fluting a barrel, just don't go full depth on your uh, first and final cut on each yeah. flute because yep. you're relieving too much stress. The thing can come around. So I'm just, sure. I spin around and I yep. 
do a little bit, do a little bit. And it's like tightening the, the tightening the nuts on a tire, right? You yep. go opposite and yep. go around. Yeah. Anyways, on one of my final cuts, something slipped and everything was at looking great at full depth. And I start running, I engage and the barrel wasn't indexed properly and it starts running down and I got a short section, which is going to be wider than the rest of the fluting. I was able to fix the rest of the fluting and all look good, but I had this one short, ugly section. I'm like, ah, what do I do with this? Right. Do I just give it to the guy and say, Hey, sorry, messed up. (laughs) Right. Or. And it's I, custom. That's right. It's custom. So I thought, well, he wants it. He wants a light. Yep. So put it in the lathe, dial it all in. And I just took it off the front Carried and yep. the thing looked as if it should have been. Yep. I'd never seen a barrel that had a big lumpy, uh, yep. schnobble on the yep. end of it before. There you go. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll give it over. I'll see what he says. And if he doesn't <laughs> like it, I'll, I'll just get him a new one. Right. Yeah, but, sure. um, yep. he loved it. And yeah. So he took it out to the range and he shot it. I'm like, oh, thank God he loves this thing. I'm never going <laughs> to, I was able to fix this one. Yeah. And about a week later, a guy comes in and he says, oh, I saw this guy at the range and he had this really sweet setup <laughs> on his barrel. Can you do the same thing for me? Yeah, of course. Nope. <laughs> yeah. The mistake turns into something. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, nope. That's the, well, the schnubel was kind of along those lines. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was like just a silly play on words that just kind of stuck. So. I love it. I said it to our German distributor and she's like, what's a, what's a schnubel? And I go, well, it's actually supposed to be schnobble. And she's like, ah, <laughs> oh, okay. That makes sense. But what's a schnubel? And I'm like, I just didn't know how to spell it. <laughs> she laughed. All right. I think that answers it. No, your barrels aren't choked and it's Negative. because it's not required. Yeah. We don't really need it once we run the hone and we hand lap on top of the hone. Right. So they're super, super consistent uh, to the point where we don't, if we get a gunsmith that, uh, like a a top end gunsmith somewhere for some example, phones up and say, Hey, I need this type of barrel. I just pull one off the shelf. There's no, right. there's no picking or anything like that. Um, they're all the same. Very, very cool. Very consistent. Yeah. All right. Next one. Okay. We have uh, Rattling Rancher. Rattling Rancher. Rattling Rancher. Barrel length, short or long for accuracy, no, which man. is better. These are all rabbit hole questions. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Wait, wait for this one. Okay. So for accuracy, it really depends in my opinion on what you're doing what you're trying to achieve. So obviously shorter barrels are stiffer, uh, stiffer leads to accuracy. Uh, so in hunting rifles, I get guys asking for super light, thin barrels all the time. I would prefer, and these are all guys that, you know, 300 meters is like, whoa, that was a long shot. Right. I, I would prefer that they go to a shorter barrel to cut the weight than to a thinner barrel. Right. Uh, because you get the stiffness, you get the accuracy and you're not really losing too much in velocity. If you went from say a 24 inch barrel to a 20 inch barrel or, or, or even shorter. I mean, we've got this weird trend right now. The guys are doing 12 and a half inch 308s. Right. Uh, and putting the, the guys at Reliable, put them on their uh, like Savage Axis and all this kind of stuff. And Big fat barrels, but short. Well, I mean, s- some of them are fat, but I mean, they're. They're short, but they're, um, you know, they're still profiled. They still got a profile okay. on them, but okay. you know, they're light anyways. And they shoot great out to about 200 meters, I think. Right. So the question is, uh, short or long for accuracy. So I think for, for accuracy, it doesn't matter for precision, probably shorter and fatter is better. Mm. Although if you look at the target rifle guys and F-class guys, for example, their barrels are all pretty much well, on the F-class side, they're anywhere up to about 30 inches. Right. And on the, uh, FTR side, they can be anywhere up to 32, 31, somewhere in there. 
or the F open, I mean. Um, so those guys are trying to extract accuracy, but they're also trying to keep the velocity where it cuts through the wind because they're trying mm -hmm. to, they're trying to smack a target that's anywhere between 600 and a thousand, uh, yards or meters away. So having extra velocity, helping you cut through the wind, uh, is going to be the thing. So, uh, on the question there, Rattling Rancher, I would say it really depends on what you're trying to achieve, uh, with your, your barrel. Uh, or with your rifle, if you're shooting long range, added velocity is probably a good thing. Um, if you're shooting short range, 300 meters, maybe 400 meters, uh, probably shorter and stiffer might be the way to go. Mm. Um, but for me, I think in the PRS game, um, you know, 24, 26 is fine. You don't really need anything that's, uh, super, super long for that game. Because the reality is, is you're not trying to hit a half MOA at a thousand meters. You're trying to hit six, five or six MOA. Right. Um, and all you got to do is make a hit on it. doesn't even have to be in the middle. So. So there's your answer. Depends. Yep. That was sort of all over the place, wasn't it? <laughs> it depends. <laughs> what if you uh, had the short barrel, but uh, faster powder burn? Well, I mean, there's always ways that you can modify things, right? Right. So if you're trying to get more velocity, you can always change your powder, but the action has to be able to handle it mm -hmm. and the casing has to be able to handle it as well. So it's not like you can super hot rod your 308 in a 12 and a half inch barrel to get it going 3000 feet per second. It's probably right. not going to happen. You probably blow your gun up, but it, I mean, there's so many new powders out there. You should definitely experiment, uh, to see what you can get out of it because a, a powder that works good in a, in a 24 or a 32 inch barrel may or may not work really well in a, in a super short barrel. So you may want to play with some, maybe some little hotter, a little faster powder, see where it goes. Do we want to digress for a second and talk about Again. why? <laughs> talk about why sure. uh, different powders might produce different uh, yeah, results? Yeah, we can. I mean, I'm not sure I'm an expert on that kind of thing. I can give you my opinion, but. Sure. Yeah. So obviously different powders have different burn rates. Yeah. So as you go to a shorter barrel, you want to try and make sure that uh, the powder is completely burned. Uh, within the barrel and that you're not ejecting unspent powder or unburnt powder out of the muzzle, which, uh, in wintertime, you can actually see that, uh, at the range sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. You see, uh, black specks in the snow in front of your target and that's probably unburnt powder yeah. uh, more than likely dumping into the snow. So the idea is to try and to get a complete burn, uh, in the barrel while the projectile is still in the barrel so that you build up as much pressure and as much velocity as you possibly can. Wouldn't this basically come down to barrel harmonics? Oh, for sure. Definitely. But I mean, there's a lot of velocity stuff in there as well. The harmonic thing is kind of a combination between the bullet and all the, all the loading processes and all that stuff. Okay. As well. Well, Rattlin' Rancher, there we go. We did a bit of rattling on that one. We sure did. <laughs> then we got, uh, Chris Fang. Finally, I think this is a, uh, a normal username. Oh, there we go. Yep. He's got two here, it looks like. Mm -hmm. So first one, they say that you need a straight barrel bore for accuracy. Is this true? How straight is a bore? I thought after drilling, boring, and rifling, the OD or outside diameter of the barrel would be machine concentric to the bore between centers. Therefore, the bore should really be straight. So all barrels should be very similar in tolerance and dimensions. Mm -hmm. So that was one big run on multi-question. Yep. So let's break it down into pieces for Chris. So you need a straight uh, barrel bore for accuracy. Is it true? Well, um, I have seen... Um, uh, thin hunting barrels that were, were basically bowed in the middle. Uh, so, I mean, it's very slight, but at the same time, 
back in the day, they used to have guys that would actually bend, uh, barrels. They would come off the lathe or whatever. And these old guys in their eighties, they'd look at it and they'd hold it up to the light and they'd look down the bore and spin it a little bit, Yeah, take it over to, you know, a, some sort of a bending press. And then they'd just give it a little couple of taps here and there, and then they'd stick it up to the light again and have a look and. See, so they try to make them as straight as possible, but. So does it need to be straight? Well, I mean. Yeah. I mean, it, it does need to be straight. Um, and we try and spin concentric to the bore with very little run out. Um, but you are going to get a little bit of run out no matter what you are. I mean, I've seen hunting barrels that have 70 thou run out and guys are like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Whatever. And if you're spinning it between centers, the chamber end, this is kind of where I was going. The chamber end and the muzzle end are on centers. So there may be a bit of a bow in the, in the center. Right. So the reality is it doesn't really matter what happens in the middle as much as making sure that the ends are, are on center and then you can spin it. Right. The Germans, they, they made their corner shot type rifles too, right? The ones that. Yeah. Shooting those around the corner. That's yeah. Right. Those, those definitely had some curve to them. A little bit of curve. I think, uh, Mythbusters actually did that one. They saw. Did they? Yeah. With a 22 and I can't remember, I think it was a rifle, but they bent it and it was past 90 degrees and it still shot. Wow. Yeah. That was a pretty cool episode. I, I never caught that one. I'll have to watch it. Yeah. You got to check it out. Chris Fang's got a second question here. He says, is there such a thing as a Hummer barrel? As a Hummer barrel. Yeah, I think there probably is. Let's tell them what a Hummer barrel is for so, those that don't know. So a Hummer barrel is just a barrel that just shoots. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of this unicorn kind of thing that, uh, people get, they'll, you know, if you look at the top end of shooting a bench rest, F-class target rifle guys, they'll buy more than one barrel at a time and they'll get them all screwed on, chambered up and headspace properly. And then they'll shoot them all and see which one shoots the best. And that'll be their, uh, competition barrel. That would be kind of the Hummer barrel. And then, uh, they'll take that one off and put it away and only shoot it in competitions. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, so what makes a Hummer barrel? I haven't got a clue. I don't mm. know. I think sometimes just the stars align and, uh, you know, the pixie dust gets sprinkled on it. Right. A unicorn farts in its general direction <laughs> and, uh, it basically is just a barrel that all the, everything is perfect and it shoots and it doesn't take much to get it to shoot. Um, I don't know. I mean, with our stuff, we get sent pictures of groups and things that I, I don't even know how the guys shoot those groups. Like I could never shoot groups like that. Groups in the ones and the low twos. Right. Point one, like, uh. That's crazy. The guys at PGW sent me a group the other day that we did for a six, uh, six BR Norma. And it was a point one eight seven five shot group. Holy crow. I'm like, holy smokes. I could never do that, but I would classify that as a Hummer barrel. But, uh, yeah. But we probably. And that's an IBI barrel. That was ours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll take credit for that one. There you go. Now, uh, we get sent stuff like that all the time. So I don't know. Maybe it's the combination of good stress relieving good steel to begin with, and then just focusing on all the processes to make the barrel as good as possible. Like we don't skip any steps. We don't change anything. Every, every barrel that comes through our shop gets the same treatment. So mm. maybe that's the reason why we, we see lots of Hummers on the, on the Facebook user page and all that kind of stuff. Precision tolerances. Yeah. Totally. Head, head spacing. I yep. mean. And chambering with sharp tools, like, you know. That makes a huge difference. Let's, let's do the right thing, right? Right. Yeah. 
uh, on the head spacing, are you getting them as tight as you can? And not necessarily. No, it depends on, you know, on, on what the guy wants to do with it. Hmm. Um, for the most part we're, we try and make them fairly tight, but we're not going to make them overly tight so that they're, they're Only, tight on closing. Right. But if we get somebody that says, Hey, I, you know, I want you to hold it a little bit short or, yeah, I want you to make the head spacing as tight as possible. Okay. Sure. We can do it. And head spacing for those who don't know is? It's basically, um, the relationship between the bolt face and how far into the chamber the cartridge goes right. and how it butts up against the shoulder of the, of the chamber. You have to be able to close the bolt. So, but you can't be loose at the same time because then you destroy your cases and Perfect. Blow, blow the gun up. Want to jump over to Reddit? Sure. Okay. Uh, user Elendal, E-L-E-N-D-A-L asks, mm -hmm. I'm curious. Oh, here we go. What's the purpose of a schnobel on a barrel? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Ellen Dahl, you left out about three O's in the pronouncing of schnubel. Uh, <laughs> I think we kind of went through it all, uh, in the beginning there. I it, think so. It was kind of a, a goofy thing, but, uh, in the 22 long rifle barrels, because you want the, the muzzle to be the tightest part of the barrel, uh, and you can cause a bore growth by spinning close to the muzzle, um, or by close to the bore dimension, then, uh, we just left it a little bit big on the muzzle end to ensure that, uh, there's no growth. That's Beauty. It. Yeah. Now we got, uh, Tricifer Tron asks, any plans on a barrel in 6.5 PRC? Well, we had a lot of plans on those about eight months ago. So you're about eight months behind. We've been making 6.5 PRC barrels for ages now. There you go. I figured yeah. you were running on it. Yeah. And it's a pretty cool caliber too. Yeah. Um, that and the 300 PRC are both pretty neat. I might actually have to build a, a gun on that, but yes, we can, um, we can spin you a seven and a half twist, which is good for all the big bullets. Um, but it'll still spin one thirties plus no problem. Uh, but if you go to a bigger six, five bullet, um, the seven and a half twist will spin it. No problem. Uh, so, yep. Okay. Six, six, five PRCs are already in the cooker. So. Beauty. Give us a holler. Dane Atello. <clears throat> Dane Atello. Dane Atello asks, is there any <laughs> accuracy or other differences between the number of grooves a barrel has? Hmm. Well, I think if you asked probably a hundred people that question, you'd probably get about a hundred different answers. I agree. Yeah. But, um, I haven't really seen any, uh, we cut most of our barrels, uh, with 5R, uh, as the standard. The only one that we don't cut in 5R yet is, uh, the six mils. And I get asked the question, how come you don't do the six mils in, in, uh, 5R? And the answer is, is because I'd only ever shot a four groove before and mm. I needed to sort of base it the accuracy on something that I had already kind of dealt with. So, um, I just went with four groove and it works good. We're probably going to get a five R going here pretty soon for some testing, uh, and see how that works. Uh, as far as accuracy goes, no, the answer is it's no, basically I haven't seen any difference as far as accuracy goes, where I do see a bit of a difference is in cleaning, uh, the five R, uh, style of rifling seems to clean up uh, a little easier. And that's just, I think because of the shape of the, uh, the, the lands and grooves, they're a little bit different. They're mm. more trapezoidal than square on the edges. So there's less places for stuff to hide. Um. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. And I think one thing that I've noticed is a lot of people say, Hey, you know, you guys are a little bit faster 
than what I'm used to. I uh, reach the same velocities I was trying to get, uh, trying to find a node at, um, with less powder. So I have a feeling that the 5R rifling, because of its design, may be a little bit faster as well, uh, in Interesting. Over, overall. Interesting. Maybe a bit, yeah. All right. That's, uh, Danatello. Yep. Uh, oh, here you go. Hellfire Phoenix and all the E's are threes. Yeah. Uh, asks, is there any truth at all to barrel break-in? Yeah. It always struck me as an extreme FUD lore, but if there's actual science behind it, I'd love to hear that. Okay. I think there's a lot of lore around barrel break-in. I think a lot of it was started by barrel manufacturers back in the day to get you to burn up a lot of barrel life, trying to make the thing, you know, do all this mythical shoot one, clean one, then yeah. shoot five, clean five and blah, blah, and on and on. Before you know it, you got a hundred rounds through the thing and you have never even fired one at a target yet. Yeah. So that uh, takes away from your actual barrel life use. So I think there is some of that. Uh, there may also have been some where maybe you need a, some examples where you need a bit of a break in because the tooling you used to cut the chamber might not have been as sharp or as good as it, as it could have been. And there might've been some edges or something along those lines. I've tried both ways on a multitude of different barrels from different manufacturers. And I personally have never seen any difference, um, in the, uh, just take it out and shoot it crowd or the shoot one, clean one for a hundred kind of thing. And I've done it both ways. I think the reality of that is whatever gives you the mental confidence to to be happy with your, your barrel so that you're not thinking about that as a possible reason why you can't shoot. I think you should fill your boots, whatever way blows your hair back. But, uh, for me, I just go by what I see. And if you, you know, if you look at all the, the pictures and stuff on the user page that people send us, like I just had one the other day and it was, this is the first five shots out of this barrel, uh, period. And they all went into like 0.5. Right. So, I mean you know, with no load development, factory ammo, if you're shooting 0.5 on the first five shots out of the barrel. You're doing okay. You're doing fine. Um, so for uh, people ask all the time, this is a question we get asked a lot. And my answer is generally, uh, don't worry about it. Just take it out, shoot it, shoot your 30 rounds or 40 rounds or whatever you're shooting the first day you go to the range. Don't worry about it. Then take it home and give it a good scrub out, use some wipe out, scrub it down to the, um, you know, to the bare metal and then carry on after that. And you know, I think you nailed it. it. I think you nailed it on the head there. Hit the, hit the nail on the head, hammered yeah. it on the head, yeah. hammer, hammer the nail on the head. I knew, I knew where you're you going. nailed it. <laughs> uh, on, on the confidence. About the confidence. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm a very big believer in that. If you believe that your gun's going to do what it's got to do. Exactly. That, that's a huge part of the battle. Well, not only that, I mean, if you're having issues and you're trying to iron out those issues, the last bloody thing is you you don't need to be wondering if you should have cleaned it a certain way in the beginning right? in order to extract more accuracy out of it. So whatever works for you the best, uh, if you want to clean the crap out of it for the first 150 shots, fill your boots, that's good. Uh, I'll sell you another barrel afterwards. <laughs> but, uh, for me, it's not really even a thing. I don't even bother anymore. Right. Um, yeah. So next question. <clears throat> okay. User, Lead Poison Brad asks. I hope not. <laughs> no kidding. He says, exactly how international is IBI? I see. I expect most of your business is with Canada and US. 
Do y'all have much business in other markets, Europe, Asia? So international barrels, surprisingly enough, is, is quite international. Uh, we have a huge presence in Australia, um, and we are gaining a lot of presence in, uh, probably the, the second biggest place after Canada. Well, maybe in Australia is uh, Scandinavia. Right. So, um, we've caught on like fire over there. Um, and it's, it's going gangbusters. We have probably, uh, a couple of gunsmiths in Sweden taught, we have the top guy, uh, was using our barrels. We have, uh, a couple of big companies and one of the top gunsmiths in Norway that's using our stuff. We've sent barrels to Finland. Wow. Um, uh, Denmark I've sent barrels to. Yeah, I think that, I think that's pretty much it. So <clears throat> the answer is, yeah, we send barrels all the time. I would say Scandinavia is probably the, probably the third biggest. Australia, we send a lot to, uh, we deal uh, with Cleaver Firearms down there and they pump through barrels like there's no tomorrow and they catch on really well. So believe it or not, at the moment, probably our smallest market is the U.S. Really? Yeah, which is kind of a, a weird one. So just export regs or no, they just- No, nope, it's not even that. Um, you're just setting their ways. Yeah, there's some of that. I mean- there are some awesome barrel makers down in the U S. Sure. Um, and so getting people to switch to an unknown, a somewhat unknown brand from shooting the barrel from the company they've been using for the last 30 years and getting good results from mm. is difficult. Right. Um, in places where there are less barrel makers and you can produce something that's awesome and get it to them in a, in a short period of time. Uh, that kind of rules the roost. So Scandinavia and Australia are two perfect examples of that. That's a no brainer. Yeah. It's pretty much a no brainer over there. Uh, but in the U S it's, uh, people are more, um, hesitant to, to try, uh, but we're starting to make inroads there, which is good. And I fully understand why people don't automatically pick up another barrel user or another barrel company. Uh, I was the same way. You know, I was shooting Kriegers before and I'm like, nah, these things shoot so awesome. Right. Unless our own barrels shoot as good. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, I want to make our own barrels shoot as good as, as what that does. So that was part of the process. Uh, so the answer to that is yes, we're fairly, uh. You're fairly international. Fairly international at this point. I mean, we've sent barrels to South Africa all over the place. Pete down in South Africa shoots our barrels. There's Pete again. Hey, Pete. Pete, uh, Asia, not so much yet. Asian countries I find have a lot more harsh restrictions on firearms usage. Right. There are places like the Philippines and I've had some inquiries, but there's always some interesting stuff going on in places like that, that you really have to sort of vet who you're sending to. Um, and quite often we'll get requests and, and it just seems sketchy. So I right. don't. I get requests to send stuff to Pakistan all the time. You're in it for the long haul. And yeah, I just, you know, even if, even if it is a valid request, I just don't know if, if us as a company really want to sort of go there mm -hmm. uh, when, uh, there's humans, human rights abuses and all kinds of crazy stuff going on over there. I don't really want to be sending them the gun parts. Agreed. They can figure out their own stuff. Yep. So we got the next one. User Canada boy, B-O-I asks. What's up with seasoning a barrel for rimfire? Mm -hmm. I've heard all about fouling up a barrel, but is there any truth to it? Yeah, I think there totally is truth to it. Um, I think when you're shooting lead projectiles through rimfire, it takes a certain amount of shots in order to sort of lay down that layer of, of lead and fouling. 
and why it's different than, than copper. It seems with uh, rimfire, uh, lead fouling to a certain degree, uh, seems to make the, the barrel shoot better. Mm. Copper on the other hand, not so much. You get lots of copper fouling and usually your accuracy goes to crap. Right. Um, so there is, there is definitely something to have the barrel seasoned. Uh, with ours, I'm finding that it's probably going to take at least 500 rounds to sort of get it there. There may also be something to do with the, uh, lube that's on most 22 ammo. Right. Uh, whether that lays down a layer in the barrel or not, I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure. I will tell you this, that at the beginning of this, uh, stupid virus thing that we got going on, I started shooting my 22 and between then and now I've put over 10,000 rounds through it, mm-hmm. um, in a few months. And I went to a match in Kamloops, uh, the CRPS match, and I figured, oh, you know what, I should... I was cleaning out the action and the bolt and all that stuff. And I figured, yeah, maybe I'll pull the thing through. And cause you know, I probably put like six or seven thousand rounds through it at that point. And I figured maybe I should pull it through. So I get up to Kamloops and I shoot uh, on the zero target and it's like five inches off. And I'm like, oh, damn it. I knew I shouldn't have pulled it through. Yep. <laughs> so it will, it will change your, your, your accuracy or your point of impact. Um, the more you pull it through. I think as the day went on and I put more and more rounds through it, it went back to where it should have been. But you know, when you're at a match, that's probably not a good idea. If you want to clean it, clean it and then take it to the range and re-season it and re-zero so that you're, you know, you're not going to get any shifts again. Do you know what that coating is that they put on the bullets? It's a combination. It de- really depends on the company. Like mm-hmm. Lapua and SK is like a really oily. Right. Uh, lubricant, but if you go to Ely, the top end Ely's are actually, uh, it's some sort of combination and I believe it, it has beeswax in it. That's what I was. Yeah. It's yeah. a different, uh, it's a much thicker lube on the Ely, the top end Ely ammo than the other ones. What about, let's say Molly, molybdenum disulfide. Yeah. So I've never seen that on 22 ammo. No. But on centerfire ammo, I have, yeah. uh, there's a couple of different coatings. The Molly is one of them. It's a bit messy, I think, and takes a bit to get it on there. And then the other one was, uh, hexagonal boron. Um, right. Which I tried and yeah, it's slippery, but did it extend barrel life or anything? I don't really think so. Right. Um, you're still, it, it monkeys, monkeys with your velocities because you have to use more powder to get the same velocity as you do because you have a slipperier projectile. Interesting. So you have to up your powder charge to get the same velocity. Um, so in my opinion, if you're upping your powder charge, what you're probably saving in barrel life from the projectile going down the barrel, you're probably killing in throat wear right. anyways, right? So throat erosion. Yeah. It doesn't really make any sense to me, which is kind of why I think both of those have slowly faded away over the last 10 years, probably. I, right. I know the odd guy that still uses Molly, but it's one of those things where they've been doing it for. 25 years and it works good. So I'm not right. going to stop. Why change it? Yeah. Why change? So user drink lucky, get lucky. Oh boy. Asks, how as a manufacturer, do you make sure your barrels shoot well enough to be competitive at the highest levels? Gotcha. Well, that's an easy question. Yep. Well, I don't know if it's easy, but there's a couple answers there. Um, pixie dust and pixie dust and unicorn farts. Uh, no. So basically the first thing we do is we make sure that we totally control all the processes, uh, when we're making the barrel. So I've talked about mental management before we use that sort of process in making the barrels. So each step 
uh, along the way, be it uh, pulling the button, drilling, the stress relieving, uh, lapping, uh, running it on the hone, any of that kind of stuff. We make sure that after that's done, the barrel is hundred percent the way we want it to come out from that process. And we took a lot of time and effort to make sure that when we are operating those processes, that it gives us what we require, uh, in end result. So when you stack all those things together, uh, you get the end result that you want mm. uh, in mental management. You, you pay attention to the steps of your, whatever you're doing and you focus on the performance of those and then you get the end result that you want. Well, it's the same in barrel making. So, uh, all of the steps that we take, we pay a lot of attention to, and we make sure that we're good at them. Then in the end, we take it out and we shoot it. Yeah. And we do a lot of testing. And in the beginning, there were times when I took stuff out and I shot it and it wasn't satisfactory. So it's back to the drawing board at that point, whether it was a slightly different bore size or a different rifling configuration or a different diameter on the lands and grooves or whatever the case may be, that's what you got to do. So I guess that'd just be a lot of trial and error at first. Yeah. In the beginning there was trial and error. I mean, we're pretty good at it now. So right. we know what combinations and, and what sort of algorithm works when you put it all together, mm-hmm. right? You're going to get the end result you want. So there's a lot less testing now. Uh, but I will tell you that nothing leaves our shop that's new, that doesn't get tested to the nth degree to make sure that it does what we, we claim that it'll do and what we need it to do. So at the highest level, I mean, part of it also is, is getting it in the hands of people that shoot at that level. Mm. So, I mean, the first thing that we probably had shot at a, at a high level was the AR-15 barrels because it was me that was right. shooting them at a, at a national championship and, and they clearly, um, they clearly compete with anything else out there from any other manufacturer. They uh, perform. And, and I've shot them all. So I will tell you uh, straight up that our AR-15 barrels shoot as good or better than anybody else's. So there you are. I love it. Yep. Next question. User striker of life asks with modern barrels, is there any point in choosing say a varmint slash bull barrel or standard barrel for long range shooting? Well, I mean, there's always a point, right? Like it, again, it kind of comes down to what kind of long range shooting you're doing and, and what you're trying to achieve. If you're, um, if you're shooting long range, um, from a prone position and you're shooting like 2000 meters, then it's going to be one type of barrel. Clearly. I mean, you could slap a hunting barrel on there, but are you doing yourself any, any kind of favors? Probably not. Um, so you kind of just have to go off of what you're, what you're trying to achieve. Um, I guess one of the ones that I get asked a lot about is, is guys that want, uh, a barrel to hunt with, but they want something super accurate as well. Right. So we have a couple of profiles that I recommend that are sort of halfway in between. The reality is, is if you want something that's going to shoot a half MOA group at a thousand meters, it's not going to be any of the hunting barrels. It's going to weigh seven or eight pounds probably. So be prepared for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, if you're looking for light and you're shooting long range, you may want something that is a bit heavier Mm -hmm. and light may not be the way to go. Or maybe you want something that's sort of light, but maybe fluted to take a bit more uh, weight off of there. So, I mean, there is actually a lot of point in choosing the, the barrel in relation to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So you kind of just have to be real with yourself. Like I get guys that are like, yeah, I want this for hunting. Okay. 
good. How long, how far do you shoot? Oh, you know, probably I, I will shoot to 800 meters. And I'm like, yeah, but have you ever actually shot to 800 meters? Right. Well, no, all my shots have been within 200. Okay. Well, <laughs> you just want something that maybe you can shoot to 800 meters. With. Sure. Well, yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Here's, here's the, what you need basically. You brought up something about fluting as well. I did. And fluting was an interesting one. Cause I remember there's a point in time when everyone says, you got to get your barrel fluted cause it's going to increase rigidity on oh your barrel. God. And it doesn't. No. But I still hear people saying that. No. For the same weight barrel, you're going to have better rigidity. I think is a common school of thought on that one. I think it depends on how you flute. And how you flute. Yep. Right. Yep. So, um, we pretty much only spiral flute mm. and the re, uh, we could straight flute, uh, providing the flutes were relatively thin, I think we'd probably be okay. But you see on some barrels, like, uh, I think the Remington, maybe like the SPS had these really wide flutes. Yeah. They're kind of flat, like they yeah, use a woodruff cutter yeah, or something. Yeah. Something. Yeah. I don't know what the deal was with that, but anyways, uh, they got these big wide flutes on it. So if you look at the barrel head on, you're going to notice that the, the, diameter of the barrel is actually pretty much cut down by the, the width of the flutes. Mm. So if you take a spiral fluted barrel and you look at that, uh, that's done with fairly narrow flutes, uh, the diameter of the barrel is probably not much different than what it is, uh, before it's fluted. So in my opinion, you retain a lot of that rigidity with a little bit better with a spiral fluted barrel, uh, than with a straight fluted barrel, uh, a wide straight fluted barrel. Mm. You could probably get the same thing, uh, with narrow straight flutes. Um, and I had a guy, I think it was, was it yesterday or the day before asking me if we we're going to straight flute. And I basically said we could, but you know, the reality of it is, is that I would have to add probably about 1500 skews into my computer system. <laughs> uh, so it's so probably, probably not. It's probably not going to happen. We've had really, really wicked results that have been uh, verified by uh, companies like PGW Defense, and uh, they they shot uh, barrels before they were fluted, then they spiral fluted them, and then they shot them again, and there was there was no change in group size, no change right. in accuracy, no shift of impact, uh, none of that kind of stuff. So, are you really losing much weight? When you, you can, yeah. you, believe it or not on like an MTU, you're almost losing a pound out of the barrel. Uh, That's significant. Which is significant. Yeah. Why you would want to do that on a, on a match heavy, super heavy barrel anyways, why you'd want slightly lighter. I'm not sure, but uh, I mean, there might be something to be said for some of the F-class guys that want, uh, in FTR in particular, where your, your gun weight is, I think 18 pounds, um, to have the thickest possible barrel with the thickest diameter, that's the lightest. Um, so uh, spiral fluting on something like that might be a bit of a thing. Um, and I know that we've had, uh, a couple already that guys have done super well with, uh, with a spiral fluted barrel down at U.S. Nationals last year. Nice. Yeah. So that could be a thing. User Juno7 asks, I'm trying to find a good reload using solid copper bullets, such yeah. as Barnes, mm -hmm. TSX, Nosler, E-Tip, et cetera, mm -hmm. in a Tika with a one in 11 twist. Okay. I'm seeing lots of articles suggesting that you don't go by the weight of the bullet, but rather the length. Why is that? And is that the true way to find a good bullet for a barrel. Well, I think you can't pay too much attention to that stuff in general, because everything you read on the internet is not necessarily true. And, and people will tell you different things. 
depending on who you're reading. Mm -hmm. Um, but there is some truth, uh, to solid copper bullets, uh, being a little different than, uh, lead cup and core bullets. And the reason is because they don't weigh as much for the same. So if you have a copper one, you're going to get a much longer bullet, uh, for the same weight. So if you compare, let's take, uh, Barnes TTSX, cause that's one I'm familiar with. Right. That's what I use for hunting. I shoot the 150, uh, TTSX. And if you compare it side by side with, uh, 175 Sierra match King or one of those, uh, match type bullets, the 155 or the 150 TTSX is actually longer. Right. By quite a bit. Right. Uh, so you have a, a, obviously a longer driving band and longer contact uh, surface area in the barrel. Now Barnes sort of puts those little, uh, cantaloupers around there. Yeah. So they try and minimize that extra contact. But I've always found that a one in 11 twist, even a one in 10 twist faster with, uh, a TTSX in a 155, uh, is, is probably going to work good. I don't know if he's talking about a 308 here. I'm guessing with a 111 twist, it's a 308. It probably would be. Mm. So, I mean, as far as the examples of, I've shot Nosler E-tips before, they shoot pretty good, but the Barnes TTSX is kind of my go-to, uh, for hunting. The E-tip is actually looks like a, just a regular jacketed bullet. So it doesn't have any of those cantaloupers. So that one may not shoot as well as the TTSX, but uh, I would probably monkey around with different grain weight, uh, bullets before I sort of threw them in the garbage saying they don't shoot. Right. Um, like for me, uh, the solid coppers generally need to be driven a little harder than some of the other, uh, bullets out the lead cup and core bullets in order to expand. So quite often guys will go to, uh, like in a 308, um, for hunting guys will be shooting like one eighties, uh, something like that with a, uh, solid copper, the, the 150 or the, even the 130 that Barnes makes, uh, are probably pretty good choices for a 308 and you can ramp up the speed a bit and then get them to blossom when they uh, yeah. impact the meat they're supposed to blossom in. Well, I think you, you know, one of the things you said was you don't always believe what you're reading on the internet or watching, reading on yeah. the internet. And I think a big part of this is go out there and try it yourself. Yeah, for sure. Because it, it's all an experimentation process. Yep. What kind of your bullet weight, your bullet length, your powder, Absolutely. your, and see what works in, in your fire. And I think most people yep. kind of want to shortcut that and they say, yeah. I'll just buy this and I will buy that one. And the internet told me that. Yeah. There's a lot of the reading off the internet and how come it doesn't work in my gun yeah. kind of thing. And it's like, because it doesn't work in everybody's gun. Right. Just because it's, uh, one guy has it working. It doesn't mean the other guy. Then they get the analysis paralysis and. Oh man. You, you know, the one I get as well, quite often the sort of on the, on the topic here is, um, guys that they'll buy, let's use 308 for example. There is a, a an absolute metric shit ton of data out on the, uh, internet, right? Mm -hmm. And most of it is pretty verified because 308 has been around for a long time. You put 44 and a half grains of Varget over a 175 or a 168. Yeah, with a federal 210 match or a BR2 yep. and you shoot it and it's probably going to be three quarters or less at a hundred. So the one I get uh, quite often is, Hey, I bought one of your barrels and the load I want to use is, uh, uh well, first of all, I'm pulling 147, uh, bullets out of some old machine gun ammo. I'm going to use those. They have this black tar on them, but it should be fine. <laughs> and, uh, I'm going to use, uh, uh, Norinco brass steel. 
Yep. Uh, and I'm going to use primers from Russia. As one gonna, does. Yep. Uh, and I'm going to use a powder uh, that I'm not sure where it came from, but I got it at garage sale. Yeah. So I've been shooting this in my other gun and it shoots awesome. <laughs> but I put it in your barrel and I can't get it to shoot. Um, so I want to I wanna know how to fix this in your barrel. <laughs> or I want to send the barrel back because I think there's something wrong with it. Yeah. And it's literally like, why are you trying to reinvent the wheel here? Yeah. I mean, experimentation is cool and fun. Mm -hmm. And what works in one gun might, well, I mean, if you're putting that combo together, I don't you'd probably be lucky if you got it to shoot in any gun. Yeah, no kidding. But yeah, I literally had a guy uh, somewhere in the prairies there that was, uh, he was shooting a stag 10 when they were legal and, and it was a, it was a light barrel. It was a hunting oriented barrel and he had this crazy load and he was crimping the necks and all this. And I'm like, oh my God, no wonder this thing doesn't shoot. And you're lucky you haven't blown yourself up. That's funny. So my advice is just, uh, go with the standard stuff, the proven stuff and shoot that if you want good results, because those are all pretty much proven loads, you know, thousands and millions of people have probably gone over that and, and verified that it works good. And if you, if, if you have a question, just email me and I'll give you a load that Beauty. is probably going to be somewhere in the zone of what you're looking for, but. You heard it here. Don't use the garage sale powder. <laughs> All right. Let's get off of Reddit and go over to Facebook. Oh my God. Let's see if there's going to be a difference in the type of questions. I can see right off the bat yeah, here. I think well, it will be. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Ian Thompson <laughs> wants to know. Good old Ian. Why are you so GQ? Yeah, well, Ian knows, I know Ian and he knows that I'm about as far from GQ <laughs> as you could ever want to be. So I think that was more just a. I think it's based off that picture you got there. Which one? Uh, the black background that, oh, that yeah. Graham took. <laughs> that was Graham, yeah. Yeah. That turned out good. Yeah, it did, yeah. didn't it? Yep. Yeah, he's uh, quite the artist with that camera. Yeah, he's pretty good. Yep. Let's go over to Martin. Martin Gagnon. How do you pronounce that? Gagnon. Martin Gagnon. Asks, for my hunting rig, with weight saving in mind, should I go with a pencil barrel or a carbon fiber wrap of the same length? Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. I mean, again, it, it kind of comes down to qualifying what you want to do with it, right? The reality is, is that, uh, pencil barrels are great for, for weight, uh, but after a few shots, they tend to open up and it doesn't really seem to matter what you do with the stress relieving um, you know, really light pencil barrels are kind of designed for one or two shots in the same hole and then it starts to open up. So if you're going to bang a string of 15 through it and wonder why it doesn't all go through the same hole at hundred meters, you need to rearrange your thought process on why you got this. Right. Okay. So, uh, with carbon fiber barrels, you're going to get uh, a light steel liner on the inside, which may be about the same size as just a straight steel pencil barrel. I know for ours, the internal liners, uh, about six, three, I think, which at okay. the muzzle is about the same, uh, size as our medium hunter. So the medium hunters shoot really well. Uh, so if we can increase the stiffness a bit by adding some carbon fiber, which only really adds a few ounces, uh, to the barrel, then you'll probably prevent it from opening up a little bit by having the carbon fiber on there, uh, you'll prevent it from opening up over a longer string of shots. Right. So you'll probably get, well, I mean, we've seen guys with the, the carbon fiber barrel shoot 10 shot strings all into, you know, the size of a dime or a nickel or whatever the case may be. Right. You probably aren't going to get a string of 10 shots out of a medium hunter, uh, that all go through the same hole. Although I have seen it done. Um, 
it's, I probably wouldn't recommend, uh, buying that style of barrel if that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Something a little bit heavier, get the carbon fiber version because we can add stiffness to it with minimal weight, uh, with the carbon fiber. So. Beauty. Martin, I would say probably the carbon fiber would be the way to go if you're hunting sheep or something along those lines and it's a one or a two shot go. You know, you might want to think about maybe just the straight medium hunter or even a fluted medium hunter, which will bang a few more ounces off for you if you're really trying to, uh, trying to save. But I think for rigidity over the same sort of weight, um, your the carbon fiber is going to win pretty much every time. Okay. Next one. Yep. John Gingrich. John, good old John. Asks, fast twist 22 barrels. Yep. This is kind of funny because I actually had a phone conversation with John about fast twist 22 barrels about two days ago. Um, and the answer is yes. Uh, there will be some coming shortly. Nice. Uh, yeah. So right now our 22 barrels are all one in 16 twist. Uh, we are experimenting. We will be experimenting shortly. The barrels should be uh, getting pulled this week actually in one in 12 twist and one in nine twist. So the fast twist barrels are going to give us a little more, uh, uh, stability right. at longer ranges. So the idea is that probably the 16, we know those shoot really well, uh, out to hundred. We've seen some groups that are around the half minute at a hundred. Um, and I'm sure the 12 and the nine will also shoot really well, uh, out to a hundred, probably even a little further than that, 150, maybe 180, something like that. But, uh, once you start getting past that sort of 200 meter mark, which is really common today with, uh, the rimfire PRS type matches where you're trying to bang steel anywhere out to, well, I mean, back East, they shoot them out of 500 meters. Right. Um, with a 22 long rifle. Uh, so once. 500 once, meters. 22. I know it's crazy, right? The farthest I've shot is 436, I think. That's impressive. Piece of steel. Yeah. That is good. Yeah. Um, and that was crappy ammo too. Mm. So what they're looking for is a little more rotational stability past that sort of 200 meter mark. So what you'll notice if you've shot rimfire is that you start to get more flyers the further out you go. And that's probably a combination of a couple things. Uh, 22 rimfire bullets, their, S, uh, their ballistic coefficient is terrible. Mm. So that doesn't help. Uh, but also your, well, two things can happen. You can go through the transonic zone if you're, uh, if you're shooting supersonic stuff, which I've seen personally at about the 300 meter mark. Uh, the vast majority of your shots will go where they're aimed, but you'll get the odd one here and there that catches the wrong something and it goes two feet low or two feet higher. You get a weird flyer and right. it's like, I didn't call that. Why is it way over there? Uh, so the idea with the, uh, faster twist rates is to eliminate a lot of that, uh, transonic zone destability. Now guys that shoot, uh. And for people who don't know what a transonic zone is. Well, so it's the zone, uh, in between where the bullet is supersonic and going to subsonic. Right. So it's this area where, uh, all kinds of wacky stuff can happen to the bullet. And when it's slowing down, it hits this zone and then it becomes, can become unstable. So it doesn't happen all the time, but you get those weird flyers every now and again. In my opinion, I think it's, it's probably because uh, the supersonic stuff is going through that transonic zone. Now there are guys that shoot subsonic like myself, uh, because I saw those weird wacky flyers and I thought, Hmm, I wonder if I stayed subsonic all the way out there, whether that would eliminate a lot of that. And for the most part it did, hmm. um, depending on the ammo, but you still get the odd flyer. Uh, and when you're subsonic, you're also dealing with, uh, more wind and right. more, more dope and all that kind of stuff. So, 
you have to deal with that. Uh, so <clears throat> if we can add a little more rotational stability to these projectiles, we may eliminate some of those weird flyers. Beauty. That guys are seeing past that sort of 200 meter mark. So we're going to be testing uh, that here shortly. And I would probably imagine that we will have barrels available, providing the testing does what we think it'll do. Hopefully we'll do some videos on it so guys can actually watch it, which would be kind of neat. Um, and we'll probably have barrels available probably January, I would think. Nice. Open. Yeah. I, I need some testing over the winter here. Get a few things done. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. It's kind of cool because, uh, I don't think there's too many other companies. Well, I know there's nobody else in Canada that does it, but, uh, even in the States, I don't think the fast twist, uh, 22 barrels are really super common yet. Right. So we're hoping to jump on that one. That'd be pretty cool. Yep. Okay. So we've got a number of, there's no names attached to these questions All right. and some of them I'm looking at them, they're already repeats. So we'll just bang through them, uh, sure. quickly. Cold bore versus clean bore. Yep. So first round shot and any deviation that you might find, there's people that talk about cold bore shot and other people say, no, 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 it's cause it's a clean bore shot. Mm -hmm. Okay. So cold bore, I think honestly, um, is more likely cold shooter shot. Right. Um, I don't really believe in the whole cold bore thing. Now, clean bore is completely different kind of topic. The two are kind of apples and oranges. Clean bore, yes, definitely, uh, things are going to change as you, uh, as you put some fouling through the barrel. So as far as cold bore goes, I'm not really much of a believer. Um, I know that, uh, in my case, uh, when I've got up to the line and I've fired the first shot of the day and it's go not gone where I wanted it to. I usually generally can eliminate that by dry firing a few times and sort of getting back into the rhythm of, uh, what firing a perfect shot feels like. Right. So for me, I've basically dry fired a few times before and generally speaking, those rounds that you fire on the cold bore, uh, go where you want them to. So in my opinion, for me, it's, there's no such thing as a cold bore for me. It's more of a cold me than right. it is a cold bore. Yeah, I agree with that. Now clean shooting. Uh, there's, there's definitely something there for sure. I mean, if you look at the bench rest guys, uh, they'll clean after a 10 shot string, uh, and then fire a couple more ciders or fowlers through it to get it back. Right. And so I think there's something to be said there for sure. Clean bore and foul bore are, are different. So next question, how often do you clean your barrel? Well, mm, it depends on the barrel. Like, uh, the rimfire barrel, like I said, I got 10,000 rounds through it. And I pulled it once and I was sorry that I pulled it. So yeah, yeah. I'd probably just leave it. Uh, as far as rimfire goes, I clean the chamber a lot mm -hmm. uh, and the action to make sure that all the gunge that comes out of there is, is taken out. And uh, with rimfire in particular, uh, one of the, one of the downsides we're figuring out is the lube, uh, especially in winter conditions can cause all kinds of extraction issues, um, in the cold. Right. Because that lube is instantaneously hot and then instantaneously frozen if it's below zero. Right. So, uh, that can cause all kinds of shenanigans. As far as, um, center fire goes, I used to be of the opinion that just clean it until it stops shooting. Well, sorry, I think, sorry, clean it until it stops. Uh, pardon me. Or, or uh, clean it when it stops shooting. Clean it when it stops shooting. Right. Just shoot it until it, until it's not shooting anymore. Right. Okay, so I think. My you changed that, have you? I have, yeah. My realization recently has been that, uh, I think you should pay a little bit more attention to it because it may stop shooting and you may not, uh, 
realize that it's shooting. Like I've run, um, well, I think I've, the most I've done is about six or 700 rounds without a cleaning. Right. Uh, still again, paying more attention to the chamber than anything else, uh, but not pulling the bore. That'd be like in a two, two, three or? No, that was my competition, six mil. Okay. Yeah. Just trying to push the limits and see what I could do. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I take it to a competition and I had three or 400 rounds through it and, and then, uh, maybe not have quite the results that you were kind of hoping for and then come back after the after the competition and put it on paper and, oh, look at that. It's shooting like an inch at a hundred or an inch and a half at a hundred. And then put a bore scope in there and go, wow, there's a lot of copper and stuff in there. Mm. So then you strip all that out and take the wipe out and put it in there and, and drain it and clean it out, take it back to the range and lo and behold, it's back to shooting, you know, 0.3 or 0.4 or whatever the case. Right. So. I think for me now, uh, I'm going to definitely probably, uh, clean and completely strip the copper probably a lot faster now, probably right, every okay. four or 500 rounds, I'll probably take it down to the, the bare steel and then refoul and then go again. But it, you know. Fouling a couple rounds? Yeah. Yeah. It, if you do it like a deep strip with wipeout and you get all the copper out, it might take you more than that. It mm. could take you 20, 30 rounds to sort of get it back on track, but it really depends on the, on the, on the rifle. It's hard to say. Well, this, this bleeds into the next question. Now you oh, mentioned wipeout a few times. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Okay. So, That's um, my go to best practices for cleaning. Best practices for cleaning. Okay. Well. And that's going to change from whoever you yeah, talk to. I mean, you know, you got guys that are still using, uh, hops number nine. With the nitrobenzene yes, in it. nitrobenzene <laughs> and they swear by it. And you know, in the barrel industry, I get to clean lots of stuff after testing and whatnot. And the reason I mentioned wipeout is simply because, uh, I will clean or I have cleaned stuff with other things in the past. And hmm, still not doing what I thought it would be doing. And then I take the wipeout in there and guess what comes out? Right. Like a metric shit ton of copper comes out with wipeout. And it was all stuff that had been cleaned out previously before with other, um, other types of cleaner. Yes. And I can verify it all with a bore scope. Yeah. So I can just look in there and see what happens after you clean with some stuff. And then, uh, I mean, I don't own stocks and wipeout or anything, but I'll tell you <laughs> what, it, it cleans very, very well. That's the, the ammonia base, whatever in there that you can smell that's you really a, attacking yeah. the copper. Yeah. And I think uh, the, uh, the foaming bore cleaner type style is really good for getting into all the nooks and crannies and whatnot as well. And just letting it sort of sit on the, on the bore and, and really get into the copper. So you'd use foaming as opposed to, uh, the patch out? I've used them both. Yeah. Um, usually what I'll do is, uh, I will take my barrel and take the bolt out and lean it up against the wall, barrel, uh, muzzle down and just squirt the foaming bore cleaner in there and make sure you put a paper towel or something under the muzzle because you'll get a, a whole pile of blue smurf snot that comes yeah. out of there and that's all the copper draining out. So I'll do that. And then, uh, I will well, run some wet patches through it. Isn't that why they sell those, uh, oil can, uh, Oh yeah. <laughs> Wish.com, right? That's right. Yeah. Solvent trap. Is solvent trap. Solvent yeah. trap. Yeah. Get those. Yeah. Not. There you go. Yeah. No. If you want to end up in jail, don't do that. That's right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, all the blue stuff comes out. So then I'll push a couple of wet patches through and see how that looks. And then usually I'll lean it up against the wall again and, uh, squirt the foaming stuff in there and just let it sit, you know, um, 
and I may have to, I may have to squirt the foaming stuff in there five or six times, uh, just to make sure. And you'll know because none of the blue stuff comes out in the end when you just let it sit in there and then some dry patches. And then, I mean, if you want to put oil in your barrel, I guess that's fine, but make sure you dry patch it before you shoot. A lot of brushing. Nope. No brush, no, no nylon, no, no brush, no copper, just no, patching. Don't need it. The wipeout yeah. takes out everything without uh, brush. I mean, if you had a really stubborn, uh, copper issue, you could probably, uh, you could probably use a brush if you want. Um, just be aware that copper brushes or, or brass brushes seem to be affected by wipeout as well. Oh yeah. So, uh, it will eat your, eat your, uh, uh, your brush, brush bristles. And if it's a copper brush, it might even leave uh, false readings on your, on your patches and whatnot. So I don't, I don't even really find any need to, to brush it out. Mm -hmm. No. You had one person say, he says, oh no, I always use nylon cause it won't, won't harm the bore. And then somebody else says, well, have you ever looked at the, uh, the eyelets on a fishing rod and they got yeah. the nylon going through and then yeah. over time it eats away. Yeah. You know, it all does something. It, yeah. <laughs> the other one I get is, uh, boar snakes. Right. This seems to be an ongoing saga of the boar snake. And, uh, so I try to explain it a few times and, and, um, I'm not a, I'm not a a guy that would ever run a boar snake through a precision gun. No. Uh, would I carry one in my pocket for hunting in case I, uh, lawn dart my rifle into the dirt when I trip? Sure. Yeah. Why not? Uh, that would be good to get all the crap out of the barrel. That's fine. Uh, in an emergency case, but as a regular cleaning, uh, thing, I would never run boar snakes, uh, through my gun simply because it's very easy to wear the edge off of the crown, right. uh, with a boar snake. You might think you're pulling it out straight and you might pull it out straight sometime, uh, but you might not. And all it takes to affect your accuracy at the nth level, uh, is just to take the edge off of the crown somewhere mm -hmm. and then things start, uh, eroding even faster after that. So for me, I always, uh, um, like a plastic coated, uh, steel rod and that works the best. And are you using the, um, a bore guide? No. No, I don't, but I know lots of people do, but okay. I don't know. You can, if you want. Just be careful. Yeah. Just put it in straight and like, don't jam it in like a. Like a fool. Like a, like a monkey. There you go. Yeah. And with the wipeout as well, I'm told that, uh, you get that on your dining room table and it can attack <laughs> the. Uh, You're told that? <laughs> this is what I'm. Who told you that? This is what I hear. I think, I think somebody that lives with you might've told you that maybe. So word on the street is. <laughs> <laughs> Figured out via experience. <laughs> Fire lapping. Oh my God. Fire okay. lapping. Okay. So we had, uh, somebody asking about fire lapping. Yeah, I don't, I've Maximized tried it. throat erosion. I've tried it. Um, I think what fire lapping is, is, uh, simply a way to, uh, take your throat erosion down a couple of notches to, uh, take the rough edges off of fire cracking right in the throat. Mm. Um, I've shot, uh, some of the little kits that you can get that are fire lapping kits through 308s that have had like six, 7,000 rounds through it. Did I see any difference in accuracy? Nope. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean it wouldn't work for somebody else. Um, on a new gun, I would definitely not, uh, fire lap. Um, I would leave the lap, if it's a quality barrel, I would not fire lap. You right. might, you might have a, uh. Uh, maybe a factory barrel that's having some real bad issues. Uh, and you think, you know, maybe a bore scope it and you know, oh, something's funky in the throat there. Maybe, 
you might want to try fire lapping something there. Be aware that you'll probably void your warranty if you fire lap it, because it'd probably be very easy to see the fire lapping on the inside. Right. Yeah. With a bore scope. Um, so for me, not really a thing. Um, uh, I shoot six mils, so they fire crack very easily. Uh, you look at a brand new barrel after two or 300 rounds and you got fire cracking in there. Uh, so for me, I just use a little bit of JB bore paste, uh, which is a very, very fine, uh, abrasive. And I just run it into the throat, uh, and like 20, 30 strokes in there, just in the throat area, back and forth on little felt pellets. Mm. You could do it on a patch too, if you needed to. And that just takes the edge off of the fire cracking. And that's generally all you need. Yeah. What about uh, carbon ring? A carbon ring. Oh, my favorite carbon ring. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we tell them what it is and. Yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so, um, on these new high speed calibers, they are, especially the six mils and even the six fives, uh, two degree and, and some of the smaller ones like, uh, 22 Creedmoor, you'll probably see it as well. So when you fire, you get a bit of a carbon ring that goes back underneath the edge of the, uh, the neck of the casing and it forms right, uh, where the chamber basically starts or not the chamber, the, the throat starts. Mm-hmm. So just back from your case mouth is, is where you'd be looking and you get this carbon ring that goes all the way around, uh, the case mouth. So what happens is that carbon ring starts to build up the more you fire and this, the signs of it is that your velocities start to go crazy because you're actually pinching the case mouth around it. So you're adding neck tension basically. Right. Uh, to the, to the case mouth. And so when you fire, you, you don't get the same velocity, not a consistent velocity. So the sign of it is a decreasing accuracy and creeping velocities. And so the idea is that. Um, you want to get rid of that carbon ring that forms around there so that you're, uh, you're getting consistent neck tensions. So how do you get rid of the carbon? Well, uh, I first realized that this was an issue on my six mil on my competition gun. I shoot a six comp match, which is basically a 243 AI. So lots of, lots of powder, big velocities on small bullets. And after, I think it was probably about four or 500 rounds, uh, I started getting the the sort of weird creeping velocities and the expanding groups from where it had been only a few hundred rounds ago. So I'm like, what the heck's going on here? And not being, um, very well schooled in the six mils at that point in time, I didn't, uh, you know, I'd been shooting 308s basically. So it's right. really a thing in 308, right? And so I went and looked and I'm like, holy crap, I have this carbon ring thing in here. So, uh, how do I get this out of here? So I thought, well, I'll just clean it and it'll be fine. Sure. Wrong. Yeah. Even Wipeout doesn't take it out. So I was trying to figure out how the heck to get this stupid carbon ring out of there. Cause I suspected that it was causing issues with the accuracy and velocity. So I tried every cleaner known to man, um, and even some cleaners not known to man. Uh, <laughs> I tried some miscellaneous industrial products. Sure. Nope. Um, where did I go? I went on a, I think it was a U.S. high power board, uh, and these, these old high power shooters had these, uh, recipes for, I don't even remember something, somebody's red juice or something. It was right. called. I can't remember. I made that stuff before. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and it had like 
10 ingredients in it and they're all highly toxic yeah. stuff, right? And still I'm got thinking, a bucket of that stuff. Yeah, this shit is going to be awesome. It's going to, it's going to peel this right out of here. Nope. Eh, wrong. Didn't even touch it. So I'm like, holy crap, this is resilient burnt on carbon. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just take the reamer and I'll run the reamer in and I'll just cut it out. Okay. Nope. Reamer didn't take it out either. Really? Yeah. So I was like, holy sh smokes, this is, this wow. is insane. So I can't remember how it came about, but, uh, a buddy of mine is, he, uh, this guy I shoot with and he's like, maybe you should just try some like floor cleaner or something. And I'm like, floor cleaner. And he's like, yeah, why don't you try that CLR shit from Walmart? It's the stuff that you can, it, that mold mildew and rust yeah. stuff. And I'm like, I don't know if that works on carbon, but yeah, you know what? It's like six bucks at Walmart. So I'll go over there and try it. So sure enough. It like worked. 10 minutes later, I had no carbon <laughs> ring. I'm like, you gotta be kidding. So yeah. So that's how we get the carbon rings out now. CLR. CLR. Calcium lime rust. Yep. The stuff that comes in the gray bottle with the orange and green label. Yeah. And so the method that I use now is, uh, I will soak a, an oversized brush. So if you're shooting a six millimeter, I'll use a six and a half or a seven mil uh, brush. And I wrap a patch around it, dip it in the CLR and just stuff it into the throat and let it sit. So let it sit for 10 to 20 minutes, somewhere in there. You can let it sit longer. And then, uh, uh, once you have that, then give the brush a few twists and that will sort of, uh, dislodge the carbon ring from the chamber wall and then pull it out. You'll see it on the patch and then do it again until you get nothing coming out or you can verify it with a borescope or a camera or whatever, if you have it. Um, I will tell you that the, the carbon ring does not look like much in there, uh, but it has lots of effect. So, ah. um, I've had guys that are like, no, I've cleaned it. I've looked in there with the borescope. There's no carbon ring. I'm like, okay, send it to me. And, uh, my buddy Alex is one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Love you, buddy. <laughs> you proved me right. Uh, he's like, yeah, it's clean. So I got in there and I'm like, there's a carbon ring in here. And he's like, oh, there is. I cleaned it like crazy. I'm like, dude, it doesn't come out with cleaning. So we stuck the, uh, um, we stuck the CLR in there and sure enough, big black smudge came out. Beauty. Uh, even though when you look in there, it doesn't look like there's much, but it doesn't take much to start affecting your, uh, your velocities and whatnot. So, That's so anyways, awesome to know. yep. His went, his went right back to uh, normal once we got the carbon ring out of there and he had a bit of a copper issue as well. He well, was doing many, the same thing as me. He wasn't cleaning for long periods of time. How many rounds was he firing in order to develop a carbon ring? Uh, I don't think it takes much. Like yeah. for me, I'll CLR every 200. Okay. Yep. Take that carbon ring out of there. And that will probably be less as you go up in, uh, in bore diameter because you're, you're having less pressure in right. there. So the more overbore the cartridges, like a 22 Creedmoor or a 22, 250, where you have a 22 caliber bullet and a huge ass 308 size case, right. that's probably going to start a carbon ring pretty quick. Right. Um, the one that, uh, we talked a little bit about it before we started was the six dasher and mm -hmm. there was sort of a thing. Uh, where guys were having lots of issues with six dashers right around the 500 round mark. And I think probably a lot of that was related to carbon rings back in the day when the six dasher was new and people didn't really understand uh, what was going on with that, that casing and that carbon rings were a thing. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. So, uh, we done on carbon ring? I think so. Okay. Uh, we've got, uh. Does an 11 degree target crown mm -hmm. make a difference over, let's say a 90 degree or other? I think if you think it does, it does. Yeah. That's, that's what I found. Yeah. 
You ever chopping one down and just oh yeah, with, yeah, see how it works. Done all kinds of funky stuff to the to the crown. As long as the edges are sharp, we've even cut them on angle. Yeah, and as long as it's sharp, it seems to be okay. You'll get accuracy wise precision. Yeah, and your accuracy, your point of impact will change. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So the only thing that I would uh, suggest on a crown is to have some sort of a recessed crown, just in the off chance that you ding it somehow. Uh, on something, if it's recessed crown, whether it's 11 degree or whether it's just, uh, like slightly set back, um, if, if something hits the end of your muzzle, who knows, you might ding your crown, uh, mm. which is bad. And if it's reset, you, uh, you may not have that issue a little bit. Okay. So much. barrel or stock, what makes the most noticeable difference to accuracy? Well, again, I think on a mechanical point, probably the barrel for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it all comes back to how you're thinking about you're shooting. So if you're shooting a stock, you might have the best barrel in the world, but if you're shooting a stock that's not comfortable, doesn't fit you properly, or you just don't like it, mm. or I have a problem with this stock because of that, you're probably already affecting the way your, your mental state, the way you're going to shoot. So. Yeah. Good point. Um, but mechanically, as far as gaining the most out of accuracy, I think honestly, uh, barrel ammunition and glass are probably the, the three top ones, mm. uh, that will get you there as far as accuracy goes. Make sure you're shooting good ammo. If you're shooting freedom bucket, you're probably not. <laughs> uh, bedding versus V blocks. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not really a uh, barrel thing, but some people will bed oh, their entire, their yep. entire barrel length. Yeah. And I mean, I've gone to the extent where, uh, I've, uh, I've bedded, uh, aluminum chassis. Yeah. Just to see if it made a difference. And? It didn't. Yeah. No, uh, I, I saw no difference, uh, in bedding, uh, an aluminum chassis. Now I have seen differences in bedding other things like, uh, wood stocks, some fiberglass stocks as well. A little bit of bedding helps, but as far as a V-block aluminum chassis kind of deal, um, I don't think there's any need to bed it, but again, if it makes you feel like you're going to be more accurate than A, go okay. for it, go for it. So, uh, free floated barrel or pressure uh, points? Yes, yes, yes. Well, I think for the most part, my experience would be that, uh, free floated barrels are probably a better option than some with pressure points. I mean, <clears throat> some of the older rifles back in the day all had a, a pressure point right at the very front of the forehand. Right. Um, and that seemed to work okay, but. I don't know if I, th I think if you look at the people that are trying to exact the most amount of accuracy out of their guns, there aren't any guns that are like that. They're all free floated. Right. Yeah. I think there is something to be said on heavy profile barrels to have an inch, inch and a half, maybe two inches of bedding uh, in front of the lug. Uh, right. Just touching the barrel. But after that. Just in the chamber area. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Just give it a little more support in front of the, in front of the recoil lug, uh, especially when you're hanging like MTUs or kind of the trend now is to these, uh, 125 straight barrels that are like 27 inches long, 26 inches long. Right. And that's like nine pound barrel or more, right? Yeah. It's crazy. So to hang all that off your action, I think, um, it's probably a good idea to have a little bit of bedding in front of the lug to help support that. Okay. Yep. How about torque settings? Are they all that they're cracked up to be? Hmm. Well, that is a, a very interesting, uh, thing. I think, uh, torque settings are, uh, something else that you have to experiment a bit with, uh, especially with aluminum chassis I've found. Well, it, you know, honestly, I've never really experimented with them with, uh, 
with like uh, stocks and stuff, but I would imagine it probably has a similar effect, but um, the, the torque settings can affect your accuracy. Absolutely. Um, on a couple levels, I think number one, make sure that the, uh, that the chassis actually fits your action hundred percent, because if it doesn't, and there's slight differences in there, even a little bit, you can torque your action, uh, to the point where you might not even be able to operate the bolt if you're cranking down on it like crazy. Right. I've seen that before. I think probably the other, the other thing is that what I've noticed is, okay, let me go back a bit here. So I started shooting aluminum chassis with MDT. They, they got me into a couple of chassis. And so I monkeyed around a bit with uh, different torque values. And I talked to a couple of target shooter rifle guys, target rifle shooter guys that shoot at a very high level for Canada. And they said, oh yeah, you got to play with your torque settings. Cause mm-hmm. those guys were really shooting aluminum chassis way before anybody else on the RPAs and, and, uh, the actions that, uh, you could fit into get aluminum chassis made for back in the day before MDT and some of the other companies came around. Right. And they said, yeah, you don't necessarily want to go super tight. You almost kind of want to have it loose in there, not loose, but just snugged in. Right. And that might help you with any of the inaccuracies in the chassis. So I thought, hmm. MDT is pretty good. Uh, I will, I will play around with it a bit. And, uh, in their chassis, I didn't really see much of a difference between like 60, 65, uh, pounds down to around 35. Um. Wow. That's quite I, yeah. That's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I have seen in other chassis differences where looser, uh, down to the 35 pound sort of zone actually made the rifle group better. Interesting. Yeah. And so I just run all my chassis around 35 now anyway, be it MDT or anybody else. Okay. And my stocks. Um, and stocks, would, or that, that would be a different thing because you're looking at a different type of bedding in there. Mm. So that would be something to experiment with a bit. Plus usually on a stock, you're trying to hold your bottom metal in with the uh, action screws and whatnot. What about torque settings on your scope? On the scope? On the rings, bases? I don't know. I mean, there's, there's guys that go to the nth degree on all kinds of crazy stuff. Sure. If it makes you feel better, if yeah. you want to lap your scope rings, okay. Put rosin in there? I don't know. Man. Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I've seen old off the rack weaver rings yeah. and bases just do awesome. Yeah. And I've always figured the torque settings, at least in that respect, uh, was more of a solution to a problem that never existed. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel too. Other than maybe to prevent people from over torquing it, people Mm -hmm. who didn't have the feel, they didn't know, is this too tight? Am I going to crush things? How tight is tight? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, with mine, I just, I just use a a torque screwdriver. I don't have any torque settings on it. I just snug them down until they're nice and snug and I don't over crank them. Right. Don't put Loctite on your scope rings. That's the next question (laughs) that we had here. Is there a question? Yeah. Is Loctite overused? That's hilarious. Um, I think in certain ways, Loctite is overused. Yeah. Scope rings for sure. Don't Loctite your base to your action. <laughs> if you have a 20 MOA rail, please don't, because if I'm trying to spin a new barrel on there and I can't get your, your scope base off, I'm, uh, I'm not really too sure what I'm going to do at that point mm. uh, or what you're going to do, because I'm going to send it back to you Yeah, probably. But, uh, yeah, don't Loctite it on there. Don't Loctite your scope rings down. Uh, yeah, I think Loctite is a little bit overused. It's again, sure. something that I've, <laughs> how often, if it's properly tightened up, how often yeah. do you? I'll tell you it? one place I do use Loctite and it's a little bit of a secret. Okay. I'll tell you a secret. Just you and me though, right? Just you and me. Okay. Yeah. So 
you know that I shoot ARs or I used to shoot ARs at a fairly high level. I've heard this. Yes. Yeah, fairly high level. So one of the places I use Loctite is uh, when I am putting an AR-15 barrel into the action. So I will put Loctite around the extension uh, and slide it in there and then tighten the barrel nut down. Interesting. Yeah. A lot of guys think that you have to put lubricant in there. Wrong. Do not put lubricant in there. If anything, you want to take up any of that extra little slop and the Loctite seems to work good. Now I don't use red Loctite and I don't use uh, blue Loctite. I use the no, green I just, stuff. I use the green stuff. Okay. Yeah, uh, which you can break free pretty easily, Yeah. but it takes enough of the slop up, uh, because, uh, aluminum receivers are not necessarily milled. They're milled to mill spec, right. uh, which isn't really all that great for accuracy. So there you go. I just gave you a air 15 championship winning tip right there. Beauty. <laughs> now that's worth listening to. What are we at? An hour and a half into are this we podcast? Already? We oh are. God. We've only got a couple more here for those who stuck around this long. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Thanks. I hope there's something good you can take out of this. Barrel tuners. Barrel do, tuners. Do they work? I think they do. Okay. Um. Maybe let the people know what a barrel tuner yeah, is. If they... Yeah. So barrel tuner is this thing that you either screw onto the end of the barrel or clamp onto the barrel and it can change basically the, uh, the harmonics of the barrel. Um, generally there are a two piece thing that you can screw in or screw out. And it just moves, I think the way it works mainly is it moves, uh, your leverage point a little further out or a little further back. Uh, it may also dampen any kind of vibration a little bit, mm. but you can basically sort of change that note a little bit. So where we're sort of seeing these really take off right now is in the 22 PRS, uh, sort of end of it. Right. So guys are doing a lot of testing, um, with the tuner because 22 ammunition at this point in time cannot be reloaded. So you have to go off the factory ammo and you have to find ammo that shoots, uh, reasonably well for your barrel, uh, for your gun. And so, uh, putting a tuner on there can actually help quite a bit, really fine tune that sort of node that you might've been almost on with the ammunition itself, but not quite there. It could shoot a little bit better if it was just a slightly different frequency at the end of a different harmonic at the end of the barrel. Just change uh, that sweet spot. Yeah. Basically that's what it does. And so the guys are able to, uh, fine tune the groups and you know, there's lots of anecdotal target evidence on the, on the net. We get, uh, guys that are testing barrels for us that are, uh, shooting the tuna can, I think is the right. red, red knob one that's out right now. And yeah, it, it can be, it can help quite a bit, uh, change your group size. Now on a center fire gun, is it a thing? I don't know. You can, you can tune your ammo on a center fire gun. So whether you actually need that or not is another question. Right. Um, it, it might work maybe for bench rest. You'd see the guys doing it for PRS where you're trying to whack a four MOA piece of steel. Right. No. I mean, you know, what's the point really, I guess. Well. If you want to run it, sure. Do well, you need it? Maybe not. There might be one coming from IBI in the, in the near future. I like that. Might, maybe. Perhaps, maybe. Shortly. Test it out, see how yeah. it goes. Yeah, you never know. Yeah. Anything could happen. <laughs> <laughs> Will the optimal load for a barrel change over the barrel's lifespan? Mm, I don't think the optimal load would probably change over a, over a lifespan. Uh, providing you're not really changing anything in the barrel. Um, what will change is probably the throat erosion. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you may or may not have to, uh, monkey around with the load a little bit to, uh, not the load, but the, uh, seating depth, uh, to get it to do what it was doing previously. Like if you have a barrel that shoots and it needs to be 20,000 off the lands, 
sure. If you shoot a thousand rounds through it and your throat erodes 20 thou, you may have to push that bullet out a bit more to get those same results. But you might not. I mean, there's guys like Eric, Eric Cortina down the States and he doesn't chase the lands at all. He doesn't care. Okay. I'm not quite there yet. I'm not, you know, I have to do a bit more experiment, uh, experimenting, but yeah, it's, it's possible. So I don't know if you're looking at my sheet here, but you're talking about things that are just leading Am into I? the next. What else do I got here? What, oh, throat erosion. What's throat erosion yeah. and how can it be prevented? Yeah, you can't prevent it. If you want to prevent throat erosion, shoot a 22 long rifle. Yeah. All the low pressure cartridges uh, have a lot less throat erosion. Uh, what is it basically is, uh, when you ignite a case or you ignite a round, um, you instantly create hot fiery gas with the gunpowder exploding inside the case and that all gets forced out through the case mouth. And that's what, uh, pushes the projectile, all that expanding gas pushes the projectile down, but also right at the case mouth, that also tends to cook the steel pretty badly right at the, right at the throat. Uh, so we see throat erosion on high pressure cartridges. So like I mentioned previously, Anything that's overbore that has a big case size, but a small bullet diameter, uh, tends to get throat erosion, uh, super quickly. Uh, you, that's one of the reasons why you can shoot a 308 for, you know, 6,000 rounds and not really see much in the way of throat erosion. Right. Uh, or you can shoot, uh, you know, a, a six Creedmoor and have throat erosion of like 10,000 in like 500 rounds. Right. So the more of that hot gas you're trying to force through a very small opening of the case mouth, the more throat erosion you're probably going to get. So if you're shooting, uh, big straight walled cartridges, like 35 wheeling or something like that, uh, where you have a big bullet and a big case mouth, and it's not really too much different than the size of the case, then you're probably going to have a lot less throat erosion than you would if you have a big case and a small bullet. And we're getting into our final stretch here. And one of them you've already basically answered. Will molly coated bullets increase the barrel life? Yep. And the answer is? Mm, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Who knows? There's other, there's other issues that come along with molly coating, uh, especially out here in the West coast. Molly coating is, uh, super hydrophilic, so it attracts water. So, right. um, if you have a molly coated barrel, you have to make sure it's really dry. Uh, when you store it, because you, it, you know, if it's a chromoly steel barrel, you may come back and it'll be full of rust. Right. So you gotta be pretty careful there. Um, and again, you have to increase your powder charge with coated bullets, be it molly or, or, uh, hexagonal boron, uh, because they're so slippery that you require more powder to actually push it at the same velocity. So we go back to the throat erosion question again. And, and, you know, when you're increasing your powder charge, there's probably a pretty good chance that you're going to. Uh, cook your throat a little bit more mm -hmm. as the, as the powder charge increases. Yeah. Talk about rusty barrels. Reminds me yeah. of, uh, going back on the wipeout. Yep. And, uh, another fellow, we'll just call him Bill S. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and he's always trying to save a buck and he says, oh, it's got ammonia in it. I can smell it. Yep. And it's like, yeah, I think that's the active ingredient and it's kind of attacking the, the, uh, the copper here, the fouling and. So he thought, I know what I'll do yeah. rather than buying this expensive wipeout, yeah. I'll just got a big jug of ammonia already and I'll just run some of this down my board. Oh boy. Through. Good idea. Man. If you <laughs> look down this guy's barrel afterwards, he brought it in. He says, 
you told me this would be fine, Travis. I never Whoa, said that. Hang on. I said it smelled like ammonia and I agreed with you. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like you're looking down a sewer pipe. It yeah. was so rusty. It's probably a chromoly steel barrel and yeah. it all corroded. Oh, That's so one bad. thing about CLR that you have to be careful with as well. I didn't mention in the carbon ring question there is that, uh, it's, it's, it needs more experimentation with, uh, chromoly barrels. Uh, it's fine in stainless steel, but I have seen some corrosion if you don't wipe it all out of there in uh, chromoly steel barrels. Mm -hmm. Um, I have seen guys that want to clean their muzzle brakes in it and the muzzle brakes are chromoly and they're coated in Cerakote or something along those lines. And they, they put it in there and it's black and they pull it out and it's gray. Uh, right. So you got to be careful because I think the CLR, uh, has some issues with the, uh, chromoly steel. So. I would just be careful as far as that goes, uh, corrosion. And I wouldn't put, um, straight ammonia down your barrel either. It's probably not. Well, it didn't work out too well for this guy. No, no, definitely not. And here's the last question. Yep. And we can always fill in more afterwards if you think that anything's been missed, but man, we got a lot of things here. Yeah, that was a lot. Yeah. What gives a premium barrel a better lifespan? I don't know if it does. Right. Um, I think. The lifespan of the barrel really depends on how hard that you're, how hard you're pushing it. So if you're shooting just uh, soft factory loads through it, well, it depends on a few things, right? Like soft factory loads will probably give you more barrel life than you running uh, really hot, uh, hand loads out of the same barrel. You'll get more barrel life out of the factory loads for sure. And also the, the caliber as well. Um, if right. you're shooting... A 308, you're going to probably going to get 5,000 rounds out of it of accurate barrel life. But if you're shooting a six Creedmoor, you're probably going to get 2,000 or right. 2,200 or whatever, right? Now, I guess steel has a lot to do with it as well. It all depends, uh, on the, partly on the hardness of your steel as well. Right. right? So the harder the steel, the more barrel life you're probably going to get out of it. As far as like stainless goes, I think Bartline just came out with some different type of steel, uh, that said increases their barrel life a bit. I think it's only a few Brunel hardness points, uh, harder than their previous steel. Okay. So whether that's actually a change in the steel or whether it's a change in their, uh, stress relieving processes, I don't know, because stress relieving, uh, it can, it can change your hardness as well. What about cryo treating? I know we were on our last question yeah, no, here. Yeah, it's but... all good. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really too familiar with the cryo treating, to be honest with you. I've heard good things and I've heard bad things. Mm. Um, some guys think that cryo treating will do the same thing as, as stress relieving. And I have no practical experience as to whether it does. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. So, well, I mean, a premium barrel life is probably going to help in a couple of ways. If you've got a premium barrel, uh, more than likely you're also getting it cut by somebody with decent reamers and you're having somebody do it that cares about what's going on. Not necessarily a, f a factory barrel that's pumped out by the thousands and they just care about getting it done. Uh, it might not even be a sharp reamer, right? Right. So I think all those factors sort of rolled into one, uh, providing you're not running it super hot, uh, is going to give you a better accuracy for sure. Uh, and yeah, probably a little bit better barrel life. It, it's hard to say. Well, after all of these questions that we've had from Instagram, Facebook, Reddit, and emailed and all, all, all different places they got coming in here. Is there anything that you think we should be talking about that was <laughs> Jeez, missed? I don't know. I, I can't Mi think of anything that, uh, that we missed. That was, that was pretty, 
That was exhaustive. That was pretty hardcore. Yeah. You did good. Did I? Yeah, you did. I probably screwed a few of them up. Probably, but. Oh, well. <laughs> Mental management. <laughs> um, Brian, thank you very much for being on the Silver Crew podcast. Yeah, anytime. Thanks. If there's anything in here that listeners are listening to and they have different thoughts on, yep. hey, we want to hear them, put them up. If uh, they think that maybe we're off base, let us know why. And uh, check out IBI Barrels. I mean, give them an email, give them a phone call, go on their Instagram, Facebook. Yep. There's people all the time posting pictures, asking questions, getting their answers there. Yep. Lots of, lots of pictures on Instagram. And if you're on Facebook and you want to check out what the barrels are capable of, probably the best place to go is the International Barrels user page. And that's pretty much, uh, I run it, but uh, it's all the, mainly the vast majority of the posts are people that are shooting the barrels already. Uh, it's unbiased inf uh, information that comes directly from them, not through us. So it's not us cherry picking a bunch of uh, groups or whatever, whatever people want to send. It's, it's just straight up results that people are getting with the barrels so that you can sort of see for yourself. And there's some beautiful guns on there. Yeah, there that are. Guys, guys post pictures of and, you know, the paint jobs and the way they put them together. It's you drool. Yeah, it does. And the groups too, like, you know, people post stuff and I'm like, you shot that with a prefit? Like how, like, I can't believe that. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> that what you're doing with it, you know? So yeah, it's good. It makes me, uh, it makes me happy every day. Check out all the stuff on there. Well, Ryan, thanks very much. Mm -hmm.